I was here uh, seven months ago in January, preaching last minute when Matt had a medical situation come up, though he was still at the service that time. So I'm not totally sure what the deal was then. But I'm very glad he gave me lots of warning this time, though I was, yes, very glad to be here the first time too. Uh, The text that he has assigned is the next one in the Luke series, so you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. Uh, I'll also have the relevant scriptures that I'm reading and preaching from up on the screen, but it would be great if you also turn there in your own Bibles. Um, One of the, the literary features that we are very familiar with in our day and age is the hostage situation. It's a staple in action movies. It basically asks the question of your priorities. How much are you willing to give up of your money, of whatever it is that you have, in order to secure something? In this case, the the safety of your loved one or some some preferred vision of the future for your family. Uh, Hostage situation in action movies are a little bit deceiving, though, because instead of saying, I'm willing to give up lots for this, the whole premise of lots of these movies are, I'm going to do everything in my power to not actually pay the ransom fee, and instead use my special set of skills to do everything I can to avoid paying the price that you're asking. Uh, in real life, though, ransom fees frequently get paid. Uh, I was just Googling some of the largest ransom fees that ever got paid, and in 1997, there was a, the son of a very wealthy Chinese businessman was kidnapped and held for ransom at $77 million American. Uh, and he paid the $77 million, which in today's dollars is like $110 million American, which makes like $500,000 Canadian. So it's an exorbitant amount of money that this businessman was willing to pay simply to make sure that his son was safe. Because he wanted more than anything else the safety of his son, the restoration of his family. And even though many, I'm hoping all of us, have never found ourselves in those kinds of situations you know that his movies cause you to think and think very quickly about what it is you would be willing to give up now, even if it affected the trajectory of your whole life, in order to secure that thing that you most wanted. As I think about the stuff in my apartment, the things that are in my bank account, I can think of nothing that I wouldn't be willing to give up to make sure that my wife was safe or my parents we're safe. And I'm sure the same is true of you, with your spouse or your parents or your kids or even a really good friend. We understand that in order to get these future things that we want to make our priorities, we have to live in light of those future priorities already. We have to be willing to give up something now to live in such a way now so as to secure that future thing that we're waiting for. And this is basically the principle that Jesus is driving at in Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. In light of the future that you know is yours, you should live in a certain way now. So I have one point for you note takers. I made it nice and easy for you. One point, one main thing that Jesus is teaching out of the parable and the explanation that we have in our passage today. And that is that we are to use what is passing to get what is lasting. We're to use what is passing to get what is lasting. So even though I only have one point, that doesn't mean it's going to be a 10-minute sermon. We're going to start by reading the story Jesus tells and pausing along the way to help make sure we're understanding it as he's telling it to his first audience. And then we're going to turn and see how he explains and applies and the significance that he gives to to the teaching that he has. So one point, but we're still going to move through a couple of different sections. So we're going to begin in verses 1 to 9. I'll read parts of it and stop along the way to explain 
what we need to know in order to understand Jesus well. So Luke 16, beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So in the, in the very beginning, we're confronted with a situation that we are actually pretty familiar with today. In the first century, if you were really wealthy, you would hire someone, a manager is the title that's given in this passage, you would hire someone to look after your financial affairs, to be your representative in the various business dealings that you're a part of. They had some authority to make decisions on your behalf, and they were responsible to make sure that what you had was maintained in a way that was for your best interests. We understand this dynamic because we have in our society things called landlords, right? Where someone who owns multiple rental properties or a whole complex of rental units will hire someone to manage it, right? My landlord doesn't own the building that I'm in, but he's the representative that I go to. He's the one that I, I send my rent checks to. He's the one who, when I have a problem with the washer or the dryer in my unit, I let him know and he comes and deals with it. The owner never comes and deals with it. It's always the landlord who acts on his behalf. And the dynamic that Jesus introduces is that allegations are made that this manager hasn't actually been doing his job very well. And what's interesting is that we aren't actually told whether these allegations are substantiated or not. So at this point in the story, we're not given any clue as to whether the manager actually mismanaged the funds or not. All we are told is that this is what the rich guy thinks. And as we see the story unfold, we're going to see that it, it poses some problems for the manager himself. So let's keep reading in verses 2 and 3. And he, the rich man, called him the manager and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So being a manager was a good job to have. It was a bit of a cushy office job, right? Your job was to deal with the books, to deal with the money, and to deal with the people. And you can see that that's the kind of job that it is because of the first thing that his brain thinks of, the worst thing he can possibly imagine, is having to turn from his cushy office job and go into a manual labor job. Uh, I resonate with that because I have a cushy office job where I don't have to work very hard, I don't have to dig, I don't have to build. I understand what this manager is feeling in this moment. Because digging in particular is one of the jobs that was at the very lowest of that society. Digging was, was the labor that you gave to the indentured slaves of your world. If your land conquered another land, you would take the strong young men from that land and use them to do labor like digging. So he's saying, if I can't be a manager, which would have afforded him a comfortable living, what are my options? If I'm fired for this apparent thing that I've done, what are my options? I can have the worst manual labor job possible. And in particular, Jesus knows for his people, digging had an extra layer of significance because when the Israelite people were enslaved in Egypt, we're told that their task was to make bricks. But a significant aspect of making bricks is digging up the clay that you use to make those bricks, right? So digging has all kinds of connotations as being the worst low of the low kind of manual labor you have to do. So he looks at his office job. He looks at the digging and says, I'm not strong enough to do that. But then he turns his attention to another source of income that was a viable option, would have been, but another one that he didn't want to turn to. And that was begging. 
And the reason that he gives is he says, I'm ashamed. And in that day and age, that was a, that was a big deal. Because what you were doing when you were begging is you were saying, basically, I have failed to do the thing that I was supposed to do for myself and for my family. I can't provide what they need on my own, by my own abilities, my own strengths. I need to rely on the, the generosity of random strangers. And he says, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too ashamed. That would, that would put me too low. I can't possibly do that. So he says that the viable options before him are both terrible. I don't want to dig. I don't want to beg. And so what does he do instead? Let's turn to verse 4 and see how Jesus continues his story. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Again, he, he doesn't stay here in his despair. He's hatched a plan. But we need to understand what it is that he's actually saying here because it sounds like I'm going to do something so that I get invited over for dinner at people's houses. I'm not going to have money for my own food, so I'm going to need to go to a lot of dinner parties. But what Jesus is actually saying is something different when he talks about being welcomed into someone's house. Because the concept of house, of home, meant something much bigger in the first century than it does for us today. See, we here welcome someone into our house, and we think hospitality. What Jesus' listeners would have heard when he said, welcome someone into your house, it means welcome them into your whole life, into your, your livelihood. Make them a part of your various circles that you are involved in. What, what he's talking about here is doing something that will secure future business opportunities for him. And he has to do something to do that. Because if he has a reputation as being a manager you can't trust, his only options are going to be to dig or to beg. He'll be left with nothing else, and so he decides, I'm going to do something that will secure the future for me. This is the thing that I want. I'm going to do something to make it happen. And the something that he's going to do is where this passage gets a little bit confusing. So let me read verses 5 to the first part of verse 8. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So from 100, cuts it in half, down to 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80. From 100, down to 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And for you and I, as we read this story, this is where we're like, okay, Jesus, this is clearly an imagined story that you're telling. Because in no real world situation would this ever actually happen. It seems like Jesus is telling a bit of a nonsense story here. But what he's telling would have made very good sense to his first listeners. Even the rich man's surprising commendation. Because a frequent thing that, that wealthy people did in that day and age for the sake of their reputation in the community was forgive either part of or an entire debt that was owed to them. If they were wealthy enough, they could absorb the cost without any significant loss to themselves. And it benefited them to be seen by those looking on as someone who was generous, who was kind. Uh, corporations in our world do this today as well. Think about the philanthropic work that lots of companies do. Right? They, they give to all kinds of nonprofits and other initiatives that do good things 
in the community. And I'm not so cynical so as to think they don't actually want to do any real good in the community. But I think a very significant reason why lots of businesses will support various community nonprofits is because they want to be perceived as the kind of company that cares. Because they know if you're faced with a business decision, who am I going to buy this product from? You're going to want to give to the company the money that you think will at some point trickle back down to the community in general. Right? It's why Canadian Tire invests in something and begins a program like Jumpstart, where they get kids involved in recreational sports who wouldn't be able to afford it without any help. Right? At some level, yes, I'm sure there's people at Canadian Tire who actually do want to help kids do these things. But at the same time, they know if they can develop a reputation of, hey, we'll help put kids in sports who couldn't otherwise do it, Maybe you'll buy your next air pump from Canadian Tire instead of Walmart. It's good to be seen as generous for the sake of your own business in the eyes of the world that looks on. And so when we partner that ancient world dynamic of the occasional forgiveness of debts for the sake of social standing with the role of manager who was able to make some decisions on behalf of the rich person they represented, it begins to make sense why Jesus would tell a story that ends with this commendation. Because what this manager has done has both secured a future for himself while benefiting his rich master as well. He's done a wise thing. He's dealt shrewdly with the hand that he was dealt. It benefited both parties. And actually it benefited the debtors too. He's done something very wise. So that's the story. A rich man who doesn't trust his manager anymore is suddenly benefited by that manager who's also working to benefit himself. Very complex. But Jesus' concluding thoughts in verses 8 and 9 almost make it even more complex as we think about how that story relates to our lives. Because what does he go on to say in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9? He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus is telling this story to, to poke his disciples a little bit, to poke you and I, because what he's saying is this manager has this future thing that he wants to make sure he, he secures. And so he lives in light of that future thing that he wants, and he, he lives wisely in light of that future thing. He's saying they live more wisely in light of the futures they want than the sons of light, the people of God, often live in light of the future we are looking ahead to. So Jesus tells the story to motivate some change, to motivate something in us. And what is it that he wants to, to motivate in us? Well, verse 9, which again has a few phrases we need to think about very carefully. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous dwellings or unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So the lesson for us. Use unrighteous wealth, whatever that is, that sounds suspicious, to make for yourself friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. So we need to think about both aspects of this teaching that we're given. So first, what does it mean to have friends who can welcome you into eternal dwellings? That's a weird expression. Because again, we're not talking about dinner parties here. There are no friends that you and I have that can welcome us into eternal dwellings. There's only one person who can welcome us into an eternal dwelling. And that is God through the person of Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is that your use of whatever this unrighteous wealth is 
has an eternal ramification. You should use this unrighteous wealth to get eternal life with God forever. That's the basic teaching. So we should ask, why does he call it unrighteous wealth? Because it feels like what Jesus is saying, well, you can lie, you can steal, you can cheat, you can deceive. All that stuff is fair game as long as you get into heaven at the end. But we should know from the rest of the scriptures that that's not the way the scriptures tell us to live. We're to live with integrity and honesty in every part of our lives. So that can't be what Jesus is saying. So what does he mean by unrighteous wealth? Some of your translations before you, if I think you have the NIV, it'll say worldly wealth. And that helps us to understand a little bit more of what it's getting at. Basically, what Jesus is talking about is all of the wealth that you have during your life. As you live on earth, you will have things, money, stuff, properties, stuff like that. And those things in and of themselves aren't unrighteous. But they are called unrighteous, not because they themselves are unrighteous, but because if you give yourselves over to those things, you will become unrighteous. It's unrighteous wealth because it makes us unrighteous when we pursue it, when we live for it. So basically, what is Jesus' teaching here? Don't live for the unrighteous wealth now, but use what you have now in light of where you're going, in light of the future that you want to secure. And it's like the difference between uh, how kids use their allowance. So uh, I don't know how allowances work for kids these days. When I was a kid, I got however many dollars a month I was years old. So when I was eight, eight bucks a month. It was the same for all of my siblings. So my older sister would get $9 a month while I was getting $8 a month. But the way in which we approached the allowances that we got was very different. $8 a month, I think it was doled out $2 a week. I was a kid who uh, always every week looked forward to that $2 chocolate bar that I would get with the entirety of that week's allowance every week. My sister, on the other hand, was the one who would put that $9 away every month and never buy for herself anything. And you look at those two kids and, and you use me and my older sister as an object lesson, right? Don't be like Levi <laughs> and live for the $2 chocolate bars week after week. Look ahead to the bigger thing you want in the future, right? This is how we teach our, our children about money. It's not just here to blow it right away. It's here for other purposes, for things in the future that you're looking ahead to. But it's not just kids that we look at in that way, right? People who, when they get their first full-time job and immediately begin planning for their future, putting things away for the sake of their future retirement, we look at that and say, that is more wise than the person who, after they've paid all their expenses and covered all their bills, uses the extra money on new clothes and fancy dinners every week, every month. We understand that there's a difference between the wisdom of a person who looks to the future, to the thing that they want to secure later on, and the person who only lives in the moment for the immediate things that they want right now. And that's the dynamic that Jesus is playing with, except he ramps it up tenfold. Because what he is talking about is, is not some retirement that you and I both know that we're not all guaranteed to even make it to our retirement, let alone know how long our retirement might actually before. What Jesus is talking about is eternal, is forever. And so if we're willing to commend people for living wisely for what, maybe 10, 15, 20 years of some kind of security in their retirement, how much more should we desire to use what is passing in our lives now to get what will last eternally? 
We should use what is passing to get what is lasting because what we're waiting for is way better than a bike you saved up for as a kid or a, a long retirement where you can live leisurely. What you're waiting for is eternal fellowship with the God of the universe. So we ought to live in light of that thing now with all that we have, all the, world, all the worldly wealth that is ours. So that's the basic thrust of the parable, right? Use what is passing to get what is lasting. And as we turn to the, to the rest of what Jesus has to say, we're going to think basically about what does it look like to do that? And why does it matter how we live in the present? Why does it matter how we use what is passing in our lives? But first, a point of clarification needs to be made. Because at this point, you may be open to an understanding about what Jesus is saying. Because what he is not saying is that the way in which you use your money now can earn your way into God's good books. The way in which you spend your money now does not have the power to make you right before God. It does not have the power to actually allow you to enter his eternal dwellings. We know that that price is one that we could not pay for ourselves and is one that God paid in sending Christ to die in our place. Paid the debt that we owed God and gives us the inheritance that is rightfully his and his alone, but he decides to share it out of love for us. So Jesus is not saying you can spend in such a way to earn your way into heaven, which is good news because you and I do not spend our money in this kind of way in our day-to-day lives. So what is Jesus actually saying if he's not saying we can spend our way rightly into heaven? Well, what he's saying instead is that for those who in Christ have already received this certain good future reality that is yours now already, we should live in such a way so as to strive for it, to run towards it and not away from it. Because those who have an eternal dwelling with God, secured for them in Jesus, will necessarily live in light of that future reality already. They will use what is passing to get what is lasting. So imagine with me, uh, you have a very wealthy friend who decides that they're going to gift you a new house. They hand you the key and they hand you a plane ticket. And say, this plane ticket is, is for one week from now. All you have to do is make sure you keep the key and the ticket safe for the rest of this week, and then you can fly to the destination and get the house that I'm giving you. Over the course of that week, how might you live? How might you change the way that you're living in order to make sure that that key and that ticket stay safe? Well, there's lots of things you could do. You could, I don't know, buy a safe if you don't have one already. Put the key and the ticket in the safe. You could change the locks on your doors if you're a little suspicious about your neighbors. They worry you maybe they overheard this conversation that I'm having. You could put more locks on other doors that you didn't used to have locks on. You can add another deadbolt to your front door. You can set up a, an alarm system or a camera system. There's going to be things that you do to make sure that the ticket and the key are safe until the end. You're going to change your life so that you get the thing that is already yours, that you are longing for, that you are waiting for. And of course, that's a little bit silly and a little bit extreme, but people do all kinds of things in order to secure for themselves that which they wait for, that which they long for. 
the question we ought to ask ourselves is, how much would we do if we truly longed for eternal dwelling with God? What would our lives actually look like? How would we change the way that you and I live and spend and use what we have in the immediate if we really longed for that future eternity? What would it look like to do that? A great question that we can ask ourselves to help us know where we're at in this whole dynamic is, is does my spending, does my use of the stuff that I have, does my attitude towards the things that I own draw me to long more for eternity with God? Or we could ask the, the negative corresponding question, which I, I find in my own heart to be a little bit more piercing. Does the way that I'm living, the way that I'm spending, the way that I'm using the stuff that I have actually draw my heart away from God? Because when I ask that question, I realize that so often the way that I am living is actually living in such a way so as to draw my heart towards all kinds of other things, towards temporary comforts, towards simply being entertained or distracted. I don't live in such a way that cultivates within me a desire to be with God forever. I let myself be distracted by too many lesser things. In many ways, I don't use what is passing to get what is lasting. But this is what Jesus calls us to do. In those times wherein we say that our answer is no, I don't live in such a way that cultivates in my heart a desire to be with God forever. What would it then look like if we were to be able to say yes to that question? So Jesus doesn't lay out specifics in this parable. He's teaching a general mindset, a general lifestyle, which ought to characterize those who truly long to dwell with God eternally. And so as I was thinking about this passage this week, studying it, reflecting on it, reading what other people have said about it, I, I thought of three things that I think our lives would look like if we truly desired to be with God eternally. So first, uh, I think that we would be generous people. Because in our generosity, what we would be doing is both reminding ourselves and proclaiming to the world how God has been so generous to us. How he has already provided the thing that we needed the most. Right? He sent Jesus in our place, but he didn't stop there. He, he lavishes upon us all kinds of daily blessings that we forget are actually ours because of his generosity. But, but when we are generous, we are reminded that, in fact, God has been generous to us and continues to be generous to us. So our generosity should, ought, to draw our hearts to long for more of God's generosity, the giving of himself for all eternity, for our enjoyment. So that's the first thing. We, we, we would be generous people the second is that we would be thankful people. Because as we look at all of these things which God has given to us, if we're, if we're thankful for these things, what we're doing is we're recognizing that, that everything you have, you have because God has been good to you. The, the gifts and abilities you have that allow you to do the job that you do, to provide for yourself and your family in the way that you do, those gifts and abilities are, are things that God has given you in the first place. God is also the one who has put you in the circumstances you find yourself in to, to work the job you do 
or to have bought the house that you've bought or to rent the apartment that you rent. God has put you in those circumstances. He didn't have to do it, but he did it. And he continues to do things like that over and over again. God has given us so much. And that's not even beginning to consider the blessings of things like a church family to gather with and pastoral staff who care for you and love you. God has given us so much. And if we need to be thankful people because of what he has done and will continue to do for all of eternity because, again, of his gift of Christ to us. And then finally, I think we should be people who give and live sacrificially. Because in our, in our sacrifice, in our giving, in our living to the point of uh, disadvantaging or discomforting ourselves, what we are reminding ourselves of is the lengths to which God went to make us his. See, God spared no expense for you. He sent his son, who he did not, who did not deserve to die, whom the father loved more, more than anything else in the universe. But that son he sent to take your place. See, God sacrificed greatly for you. We ought to be people who, in response, are sacrificing kinds of people. What, what these three things, generosity, thanksgiving, and sacrifice, actually look like in your day-to-day life is beyond the scope of, of what I can even imagine getting into. But I would encourage you, ask God, pray, have it as a thing that you pray for this week, that God would begin to show you where each of these things might show up in your life, how you might begin to live in such a way that you use what is passing to get what is lasting, that God has already secured for you in Jesus. Because it is a demand on your whole life. But God is faithful to help you do it. So that's what it looks like to use what is passing to get what is lasting. But then Jesus turns in case this passage isn't prickly enough already. In verses 10 to 13, he starts to drive at reasons why it matters how you use what is passing. Why it matters how you live in the here and the now. And the first reason is that your attitude towards the things that you have reflects true realities of your heart towards anything God will give you. So let me read verses 10 to 12 for us. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will, be, who will give you that which is your own? See, returning to this idea of, of an allowance, you know that the ways in which kids treat the money that you give them when they are young kind of shows you the pattern that the rest of their life is going to follow. So I mentioned that, that my older sister didn't spend any of her allowance. Like, I can't remember her buying a single thing over the course of her whole childhood. And ever since she's moved out and has finished her degree and lives on her own, everything that she has ever gotten, all the wages she earns, any inheritance that she has received, any gifts that she gets, all of these things, as far as I'm concerned, just go straight into various savings things that she's doing. She doesn't upgrade her lifestyle. She shops at the thrift store. She does not do anything that indicates to me that the pattern I saw when she was nine has changed at all when she's 27. The pattern holds true in little and in much. And the same is true for me, though, admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, it's not $2 chocolate bars anymore. 
Not that I want them less. I just have a little more self-control now. But, I, but I'm the kind of person who always kind of knows the next thing that I want to purchase, the next thing that I want to buy. The pattern holds true, right? What is true in the lesser is certainly true in the greater. And this matters so much in this teaching. Because what Jesus is saying is how you look at the stuff you have now is how you're going to look at anything else God might give you in the future. Even how you will look at being welcomed into God's eternal dwellings. Because if you look at the things that you have now, it's primarily being for your own fulfillment, your own enjoyment, your own self-satisfaction. You're going to look at the things that God will offer you later for those same kinds of purposes. Selfishly, right? If you're selfish in the lesser, you'll be selfish in the greater. If you're greedy in the lesser, you'll be greedy in the greater. Jesus is saying how you live now reflects the true state of your heart regardless of what it is that God has and will give you. So I would encourage you to ask people who know you difficult questions and questions that are, that are difficult for you to hear the answer to. Because our, our financial lives are not parts of our living that we frequently open to input from other people. Right? In, in our society in particular, it's, it's really rude to ask people questions about their financial dealings and the way they're living and spending. But if what Jesus says here is true, we should be willing to open up our financial lives and expose it before the eyes of others. We need to be held accountable in this area because the stakes are high. So I'd encourage you, turn to someone you know this week. Someone who knows the way that you live and you spend. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a really good friend. Maybe a roommate or a sibling you're particularly close to. And ask the question, what does my living and my spending reveal about my heart towards God? Does it reveal a heart that is, that is thankful? Does it reveal a heart that acknowledges God's generosity to me in all of these things? Or does it reveal a heart of entitlement? One that says, I've earned this. It is mine. I will do with it what I see I should do with it. And be ready for hard conversations. But it matters because of the connection Jesus draws. Your heart now will be your heart then. So it's better to know it earlier rather than later. Ask these hard questions. Be ready for uncomfortable conversations. And in case that wasn't prickly enough, what, Jesus goes on and escalates it once more in verse 13. Where, what, is, what does he say in verse 13? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God and money. And in case the state of your heart concept in 10 to 12 isn't clear enough, he's saying that actually your attitude towards the passing unrighteous wealth that you have now reveals whether you serve God or not. And Jesus puts this to us as a very clear, mutually exclusive dichotomy. It's one or the other. There is no room for you if you serve money to also serve God. And as people living in the Fraser Valley in the, in the 21st century, we should not rob this passage of its weight because we live in a world that is convinced it is the best thing for you. We live in an economic system that is convinced it is the best thing for you to serve money, to give yourself fully to the pursuit of it and then fully to the enjoyment of what it can bring you. 
Our world tells us, no, no, no. Money is that which you should serve. But Jesus says it's one or the other. You can't do both. And so I thought the best way to close would be to present before you the kind of lives that come about when you serve either money or you serve God. The way that scripture talks about the resulting life that each master will lead you into. So the first, well, the kind of life that, that serving money leads you into is, is summarized very well by Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, where he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, right? Through the love of money, you walk away from the faith. The exclusivity is clear. They have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The life that serving money will lead you into is a life of pain. And though it doesn't appear like that at the start, right? Everything looks rosy in the beginning. Very quickly, you'll find that money is a hard master to serve because money constantly demands. It always requires more of you. You you never have enough. And it makes promises that it cannot fill. It writes checks that it cannot cash. The kind of life that money leads you into is a slow and steady march towards death. Because money cannot bring you life. Money does not love you. Money has not sacrificed anything for you. The actual word in the Greek here is is mammon. It's a personified money. And it's an evil master who will lead you down a life where you will be pierced with many pangs. And it's a life that is actually death, but it's death that our world wants you to think is actually life. Money will not fulfill you. Money will not make you happy. Money cannot offer you eternal life. So thank goodness money isn't the only master presented to us in Jesus's words, because the way of life that you walk in when God is your master is so radically different than the way of life money leads you down. And it's summarized very well by Paul again in Philippians 4, starting midway, verse 11 through verse 13. I have learned in every situation that I am to be, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When we pair what Jesus says about God in Luke 16 as the one who can welcome us into eternal dwellings, who has purchased that for us in Christ, with this vision of the Christian life in Philippians 4, what we see is that God is the master who can lead us down a life, uh, down a path which truly leads to life. Because what does Paul say? Whether you have lots or whether you have nothing, when you have Christ, you have enough. And the reason that he can say that is because, yes, in Christ, you have your future secured. Christ paid the penalty you could not pay, defeated death, the enemy you could not defeat. But he also is with you in the present. Christ strengthens you now because you have Christ now. He sent his spirit to dwell in you, to empower you, to transform you to conform you, to be like Jesus so that you can actually follow him, so that you can live a life where you use what is passing to get what is lasting. 
God will walk with you through any difficulty that comes before you. He does not promise you, obviously, a life of abundance, as Philippians 4 and so many other passages make very clear. But what he does promise you is his presence with you. And if God is with you, you have all that you need. So these are the two masters presented to us in the question of what will you do with your life now in light of what you're looking towards in the future. And how should we respond to Jesus' teaching here? We should use what is passing to get what is lasting. So I'm going to pray for myself and for us to that end as I invite the music team up and they'll lead us in some singing in response. But pray with me now. Father, you have been good to us in in many ways uh, today, this week, over the course of our entire lives, uh, and in so many ways that we have neglected to give you thanks for. Father, we we often take time to remember the, the remarkable things you have done for us in Christ, and we need to do that more. We need to remember the greatest act of sacrificial generosity that you have ever poured out, how you sent your son to die a death in our place and to defeat the enemy we could not defeat ourselves. But everything that we have in our daily lives is also from you. So Father, help us to think about our lives now in light of our eternal life with you. Help us to live and act and spend and buy in such a way that reflects the place where we're going, that reflects the God whom has saved us that we are going to be with forever. Father, empower us by your spirit to be faithful to you in these ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power. Amen.